Well, I am excited about our, uh, our passage today. I've titled the message this morning, The Bustling City Without Walls. The Bustling City Without Walls. And I'm excited about this passage because I think it's a vision with tremendous encouragement for the church. A bustling city without walls, a description of what it means to be amongst and in the people of God, to find uh, tremendous security amongst the people of God. You know, uh, I wonder if you're, if you're concerned at all about the state of the church right now. And I wonder that because I know as a pastor, I think about that all the time. I think about the church and the state of the church, not just this church, the church, uh, you know, big C church. I, and I don't know how much you guys think about that to the extent that I do, but, but I wonder if you're concerned about the church. Uh, I was on a conference call earlier this week with several pastors from across different parts of the country, and um, you know, the, 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 the guy who was leading the, the call uh, pointed to me first, this was on Zoom, pointed to me on Zoom, and said, uh, Bill, how are things going at Edgewater? And I, and I was like, you know, honestly, I'm really encouraged. Uh, I, told, I told them about the baptisms that we've been having and, and new people coming and, you know, with COVID uh, restrictions starting to ease in the city, people feeling fear to come back. And I was, I was just kind of given this really encouraging report. Um, and then the next guy after me who was asked, how, how are you guys doing in your church? And then in the subsequent probably four or five guys after that who were asked, um, they were like, man, we're really discouraged right now, you know? We're really discouraged. People are, you know, the whole COVID thing, you know, obviously the churches have shut down. People, people aren't, aren't necessarily coming back. And, and there just seems to be a lot of uncertainty. And some of the pastors were in uh, uh, Minneapolis area, and we're talking about just the unrest uh, in the city of Minneapolis over the last few weeks and just the strain, the, the, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual strain that that's been putting on the churches and the people in the churches. And anyway, at, at a certain point, I was... I was feeling a little weird that I was like the one guy that was like, hey, I'm, I'm really encouraged right now. Um, and I don't feel weird about that. I praise God for that. I do feel really encouraged right now. Uh, but I was also sitting there thinking, if you had asked me that question three months ago, I would have said I'm really discouraged too. <laughs> so uh, are you discouraged about the state of the church? Um, this is a passage that speaks so much comfort, encouragement, uh, to us as God's people about the state of the church, regardless what we think the state of the church may be. And, and regardless of, of, of how that will, the state of the church will kind of go up and down in terms of, of levels of, of encouragement or discouragement, trial, tribulation, uh, revival. I mean, there's ups and downs. But throughout it all, there's a constant state of the church that has to speak to the security that we have in Christ. And that's what this passage is about. So I want to encourage you with that. Remember the context in Zechariah. So this is written to uh, the, the, the people right after they've spent 70 years in exile uh, up, in, up in Babylon. And they've returned now back to Jerusalem because Babylonians have been now overtaken by the Persians. And the new king uh, of the Persians says, you guys can go home. Uh, you can begin to rebuild your city. You can re begin, begin, excuse me, to rebuild your temple. So they go back with this sense of hope, but at the same time, 
they're actually finding that it's not going the way that they thought it was going to go. They're, they're living fairly discouraged because many of the people had not returned with them. A small group of people went back. The majority of people were like, hey, our lives are pretty comfortable up here in, in Babylon, in Persia. Like we're, we've, we've, we've lived here our whole lives at this point. Uh, and they did not want to come back. So there was a discouragement about that. And those who did come back were, were told to, to, to you know, rebuild the city, but, but specifically rebuild the temple. That was what God's instructions to them were. But they were not very motivated to do that. They were hesitant to do that because they were worried about building their own houses first. There was a, a, a drought. There was famine. And there was just economic hardship. There was a lot of things going badly and so, again, the temple wasn't being rebuilt. All these external circumstances were getting in the way. I, I want you to, to, to know, though, that, that, that God wants them to understand that these temporary circumstances that are getting in the way are actually not the cause of their inability to rebuild the temple as he has commanded them, but the result of their failure to do what God has commanded them. So look back to the book of Haggai. You, you probably have to flip back one page. It's right before Malachi. And in Haggai chapter 1, verse 7, again, this is also written to this group of people who have returned from exile. Haggai, the Lord through him, explains to them what's, what's going on here. Verse 7 of chapter 1, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So he's saying, build the temple, rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. I, this is where I dwell. This is where I come and be with you. This is the priority. Verse 9, he says, but you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. In other words, all these discouraging things, the, the famine, the drought, the, the, the hardships that you're experiencing, you were looking for a lot to happen, but very little has happened. And in fact, he says, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth is, has withheld its produce, and I've called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Why is there a drought? Why is there this discouragement? It's because you haven't built my house. Remember the word that, that, uh, that the Lord brings to the people through Zechariah in the, in the beginning of Zechariah? Return to me, right? Return to me and I'll return to you. Turn your hearts towards me. The priority there is build my temple. Why? Because that's where the presence of God will now come and dwell with the people. If, if our hearts are towards him, our top priority is, is, God, your presence. Be near to us, Lord. But they hadn't yet demonstrated that. That's why there was famine. That's why things were still discouraging. Haggai, again, chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? What was another reason why they were hesitant to rebuild the temple? 
because it wasn't nearly as glorious as the one that had been destroyed. Solomon's temple, the original temple, was this beautiful, grand, glorious structure. This new one wasn't that impressive, at least not to those who had seen the original. And so he's asking them, who's left among you who saw this house before it was destroyed? Who's old enough to remember what it was like? What do you see now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. So fear not. Look down at verse 9. God says, the latter glory of this house, this house that doesn't look that impressive to you, this house that doesn't look as glorious as the original one looked, the later glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So again, you guys haven't yet return to me. You haven't yet turned your hearts to saying, God, we we want nothing more than your presence in our midst. And God's saying, build the temple. And I promise you, the glory of this one, it doesn't look like it. It'll far exceed what you've seen before. So we get back to Zechariah, and you'll recall that, that the opening part of Zechariah, again, was the call to repent, to return to the Lord, and he will return to them. This is after these declarations of Haggai, and, and we see the people finally are, okay, like, yes, our hearts are, are inclined towards him. They're, they're ready to begin building the temple again. And so we get these night visions. The first vision in Zechariah, basically the Lord was saying, I'm with you in your lowest state. I'm with you, and I will rebuild my city. The second vision, he says, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to judge the oppressors who have weighed you down. I'm gonna, this was the vision of the, of the four horns and the four craftsmen. The craftsmen are coming to, to hew down the power of those who've oppressed you, and I'm, I'm going to again choose Jerusalem. The second vision, uh, again, expands on the judgment of God against the oppressors. And now we're getting to a third vision. And this third vision expands on God's promise and plan to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and to choose again Jerusalem. And here's the main idea of today's text. Here's the main idea of the vision. The Lord will populate and protect his church because he is present with us. The Lord will populate and protect his church because he is present with us. And you'll notice there's three P words in there, right? Populate, protect, and presence. Keep those in mind because they're going to they're appear regularly throughout the message of this vision. Let's look at the vision. Chapter 2 of Zechariah. He says, I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. 
So the vision here begins with the man with the measuring line in his hand. And if you recall, this measuring line was mentioned back in the first vision in reference again to the rebuilding of God's temple and the entire city. Look back again to chapter 1, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So this is the explanation. This is the, the, the continuance of that picture. Again, a measuring line is what? It's a, it's a surveyor's tool. So the image here is one of a construction site. Have you ever seen a surveyor? We don't see measuring lines so much, but you ever seen the surveyors, that, those guys that stand on the corner and they're looking through those like telescope-looking things or the little, and maybe like the little laser measurers? That's what this is like. It's a, it's, again, it's a construction site. The city of Jerusalem had been completely ransacked, completely destroyed by the invading Babylonian army some 70 years prior. So it needed to be rebuilt. But it not only needed to be rebuilt in order to be inhabitable, it also needed to be rebuilt in order to be defensible. A city and its walls provided citizens with a sense of safety and a sense of security. Most ancient cities were defended by an outer wall. Without that wall, they're vulnerable to attack. And that was certainly the position that Jerusalem is in right now. It was a disgrace, in fact, for a city to be without its walls. And so, therefore, the rebuilding of the wall around your city would have been among the highest priorities. And I think that's what Zechariah must obviously be thinking about when he sees this vision and he sees this surveyor who's saying, here's the, here's the boundaries of the city. Here's its length. Here's its breadth. He's got to be thinking, good, the wall. We need this wall for our security, for our protection. But that's what was sort of obvious. That's what all of us would be thinking if we saw this vision as he does. But something surprising happens instead. Verse 3. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as, of, as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. This is an incredibly important and beautiful picture. So please don't miss what's happening here. What the angels want Zechariah to know here is that, look, Zechariah, your expectations, the people living in the city at this time, their expectations of what a rebuilt city will look like is far smaller and far less secure than anything you could possibly imagine. Your vision of what's going to come, it pales in comparison to what God's actually got in mind. Much bigger than you could imagine much safer than you could imagine. And in fact, the angel's uh, declaration here is sort of bursting with with joyful anticipation of of what he wants Zechariah to understand. He says, run to the other angel, run, tell Zechariah what this really means. He's sort of bursting here. What does he mean? He means this, the city that God envisions rebuilding is a city without walls. I just told you how important walls were, right? Right? 
How, how every city needed walls for its protection and, and how every city needed it for a sense of, of, of honor to not be disgraced. Yet God says, no, there's going to be a city here without walls. Why? Why is that so important? Because walls are limiting. Walls are limiting. They limit both the size of a city, right? And they also limit the, the, the permeability of the city, the ability to, to kind of move in and out of that city freely. It's, it's limiting. Now, there's, there's something that could be very positive about those limits, but there's also something that can be negative. On the positive end, a wall does provide defense from unwanted intruders, right? But on the negative, it limits the number of people who can find their safety within those, those protective walls. But in God's design for a city without walls, there's no limits to the population and the prosperity of this city, and at the same time, it's also fully protected. Notice the promise of a populated city. He says, Jerusalem shall be inhabited because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. The, the picture here would have been a little strange for Zechariah and the people of that day. It's more like a modern-day city. A city like Chicago, for example, that's made up of, of many different neighborhoods, right? And they stretch as far as the eye can see. It's, it's like this, 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 this modern picture. And it's not, a, it's not stretched out and, and expansive because of sprawl. Like maybe a, a, a city like Houston or Phoenix where, where there's all kinds of vacant lots that separate the, the different populated centers. It's, it's different. It's, it's densely populated. More like a New York City or a Chicago. It's a, it's a city that is bustling with activity and commerce and prosperity. It's not just going to be filled with people. It's going to be filled with livestock, right? This is, it's business. It's commerce. And anyone who wants to enter then can come in. There's room to grow in this city without walls. It's limitless in its size. Anyone can come. So that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting and beautiful picture for them to consider. But maybe they're asking this, if anyone can enter, is it safe? Yeah, it's safe because there's also a promise of protection. He says, I will be a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. The symbolism of that promise, of that statement, runs deep. That's Exodus imagery. It's Exodus imagery. When Israel was rescued out of Egypt, and then Pharaoh you know, changed his mind about letting Moses' people go, and he, and he sent troops to pursue them, what did God do? He caused a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night to come in between the Israelites and the Egyptians and shield them while he opened up the, the, the pathway through the Red Sea, right? This is Exodus chapter 14. He protected them. That's the picture that God has in mind here when he says, I will be to her, this new city, a wall of fire all around. Anyone, and, and hopefully the, as God's people, they knew this, they could remember this, but anyone who could recall the Exodus account would know that a promise like this, God's wall of fire, protection like that, that's bulletproof protection. 
could not fail. So here's this promise to them, populated and protected. Populated and protected. This would have been hugely encouraging for the people of God here. But what makes it populated and protected, what makes these promises so assuring to them is the reason why those things would be true. And it's what he says there at the end of verse 5. He says, I will be the glory in her midst. The city without walls will be bustling and secure because of God's presence. This is why the rebuilding of the temple again was so important. The temple, of course, was the the dwelling place, the physical dwelling place of God's spirit amongst his people. And it's this third vision in which God has promised three different times that he will come and dwell in their midst. He says it in verse 5. We'll see it in verse 10 and also in verse 11. Yes, this will be a populated and protective city, but it, it will be the place where I am, and that's why all those things will be true. I love how this one commentator puts this. He says, for the post-exilic community, his promise to dwell among them meant that he would change them from being forsaken and abandoned to being welcomed and empowered. He would change the city from pitiable to glorious. He would change the community from vulnerable to protected. He would change the nation's barrenness to prosperity. He would change Judah from irrelevant to significant. In other words, God had declared he would change the world by entering the world. What an amazing vision this is. God's chosen city will be rebuilt, but it'll be built as a bustling city without walls. And because of the presence of God in its midst, the city of God will be prosperously populated and protected beyond anything we could ever imagine. That's the vision. That's the third vision. Now what God does from here is he begins to give them some immediate application and then he's going to give them some some future application, right? But remember the promise here. A populated and protected city because of the presence of God in its midst. There's incredible hope and comfort offered here. But the immediate application also brings with it a command Verse 6, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Immediate application is this, I need my people back, right? About 50,000 had returned at this point, but the vast majority, as I said before, were still back in Babylon, still back you know, within the, 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 the empire of the, of the Persian uh, reign and rule. And the reason why, again, they hadn't come back is because they'd grown very comfortable there. 
Again, they've lived there for 70 years. So for most of us, if we were in their shoes, our entire lives, we've grown up in this system, we've been educated in this system, we've taken on jobs, we've got career paths, we've got families, we've got probably a house and maybe a little property, right? We, we get comfortable. And so this call to come back to, to rebuild the temple because the presence of God will dwell with you was kind of falling on some deaf ears. Yeah, but I'm, I got everything I need up here. And so here's this emphatic call. Get up. Wake up. Come to me. Get out of Babylon. You think Babylon is secure. It's not. You think Persia is, is where it's at. You think this is a, the lasting stronghold in the world. It's not. Listen, that's what I'm building. Get up. Get out. Flee. Come to me. Babylon and Persia's days are numbered. And that's true of every earthly, worldly power and system. True comfort, true safety, true security are found in the presence of God alone. And so he's saying, flee the world and come to me. Come under the shelter of my wings. That's the immediate application for God's people. And he expands then on his promise to be the protector of his people. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Again, these, these, these worldly systems, these worldly empires, these worldly comforts, they won't last. In fact, they will be, become plunder to those who have entered into the safety and the presence of God. And he says, as he promises again judgment on the world, he says, but I protect you because you are the, the apple of my eye. Those who return to me, those who, who come into my presence are protected because you're the apple of my eye. What does that mean? You know, we, we use that phrase still somewhat, and I think we use it in a way that may be a little bit different than, than what is being said here. When we say the apple of my eye, we say something or someone is sort of darling to us, right? She's the My daughter, she's the apple of my eye, you know? And I think there's some of that that's being conveyed here, but the, the literal meaning of apple of, of his eye is gate of his eye. It, it probably literally refers to like, the pupil of an eye. And so I think what God is saying is two things. One is, you're at the center of, 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 my, effect, of my attention and affection. Right? I'm, I look at you. You're the apple of my eye. And my eye is, your eye is, the pupil of your eye is one of the most sensitive parts of your body, right? And if someone is coming to poke you in the eye, your immediate reflection is or a reaction is to is to do this right is to is to swat it away you're going to protect your eye and i think that's what god is saying about his people here you're you're so precious to me and my reaction will be so swift for you i'm going to protect you like i'd protect myself if someone was poking me in the eye this is who you are this is who i desire you to be so Return to me, flee, get out of the, the world and come under my care. And in verse 10, we see another reminder 
of his presence. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. So immediate application is get up, wake up, come in. Then there's a future application. We'll call it an eschatological application, all right? And I'll explain what that means if that term's unfamiliar to you. But let's start in verse 11. He says, And and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. The future application, the promise here is, I will dwell in your midst, and many nations shall come to you. I say it's a future application because it will ultimately be fulfilled in the eschaton. And by eschaton, eschatological, I said that word before, it means the final event, the last day, the day of the Lord. This is a promise that looks forward to the, to the final, the consummation of everything. And in Revelation 21, we see it. We see this day when this promise is fulfilled and the world is thus populated. Keep your finger in Zechariah. Flip, flip back to Revelation 21. It, it's, it's probably the last page of your Bible, unless you have an index or maps or something like that. But Revelation 21, it's the second to the last chapter in the whole Bible. And I want you to see the fulfillment of this promise here in Zechariah. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The fulfillment of the promise. On that day there will be no need for a temple in the holy city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb will be its temple. And just as Zechariah said would happen, nations will gather there. And and, and the glory and the honor of them will be brought into this city. The glory of God in her midst will shine so brightly that its gates will remain perpetually open without fear of attack. Look down at verses 21 through 27 of the same chapter. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There'll be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
as we found in the first two visions and we'll find in all of the subsequent visions, all of these promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. God saying, I will dwell with my people. I will populate my city. I will protect you. This will be a, a city without walls, permeable yet safe. All of it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we see ultimately that it finds its fulfillment in Christ when he comes back and establishes this new Jerusalem that's being described here in Zechariah. This is what we have to look forward to, church, on the last day. This is what Jesus will set up and establish forever when he returns. But we have to ask this question. What about application for us today? There was an immediate application for the people of Israel, right? Get up, get out of Babylon, come back. And there is this future application. This is what it's going to look like on the last day. Is there an immediate application for us just like there was for them? Or are we just waiting on the future application of how Jesus will fulfill this in the end? I didn't say this probably as clearly as I, as I should have last week because I had a good question that was asked of me this week about last week's sermon and the vision of the, the, the horns and the craftsmen. And the question was, you know, I can, see, I can see the immediate application of that. I mean, certainly we know that the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians and then eventually along came the, the, the Greeks and the Romans. And so there was a literal fulfillment of, of these horns, these powers being crushed And obviously we can see how Jesus will fulfill that when he comes back in the end. He's going to come back and he's going to establish his authority and his power. He will put down finally all oppressive powers. I mean, that's clear in the book of Revelation. But the question was, was, how do you apply this? Because I did. I I applied this to the church today and how we act in line with Jesus as those craftsmen who hew down the powers of oppression, not by might, but by love, by sacrifice, by service, right? So I want to make, be clear that, that there's a similar application here. And, and my answer to the question that was asked to me is, yes, we see the fulfillment of these things in the second coming of Christ. But we have to recognize how the first coming of Christ also fulfills these things, but in a different way in an already not yet kind of way. The first coming of Jesus is the, is the establishment and the beginning of the kingdom of God that will be fulfilled finally in power at the end. But, but his first coming was very different than his second coming. How does he fulfill it now? Well, again, remember the promise of God's presence. God would change the world by entering the world. That promise was kept in Jesus' first coming, just as it will be in his second. It's in the incarnation that God truly came to be present among his people. Remember when the angel appeared to Mary and announced to her that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and he told her, this baby will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
And in Jesus, God took on flesh so that he could walk among us, so that he could live beside us, so that he could suffer with and for us. It's in him that God's glory entered our world. And then Jesus revealed to us that he is the true temple of God. Remember what he said? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And the people who heard that said, what are you talking about? It took 46 years for this temple to be built. You're going you're to tell us to knock this one down, and you're going to rebuild it in, in, in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. I'm reading directly out of John chapter 2. He was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They not only remembered, oh yeah, this is what Jesus said, but they recognized that he was fulfilling what we're reading today in Zechariah. By Jesus' death, he was exiled for us. And by his resurrection, the presence of God is renewed and sealed forever. Remember when the resurrected Jesus appeared to his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel, he said to them, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he promised to send us his spirit so that we, the church, would now be the temple. We would now be the temple. We would be the dwelling place of God on earth. Ephesians 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. And Jesus will populate his church. And he'll populate it as a city without walls. God's plan all along was for his people to, 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 to number, uh, the, like the number of stars in the sky or the grains of sand on the, on the seashore, that, that we would encompass every family, every nation of the earth. That was God's promise to Abraham in the, in the very beginning. And that when we get to the book of Acts in the New Testament, it begins to tell the story of that happening, non-Jewish people coming into the church. Today, there are believers from all around the world, every skin color, diversity of languages and cultures, all coming into Christ and into his church. And you only have to look around the, the few people in this room to see that that's true. Zechariah 2, 12 says, The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Those plans continue to move forward. Jesus came from Judah. Jerusalem was rebuilt. And Jesus died there and rose there. And from there, the gospel has gone out into all of the world. God is populating a new Jerusalem. And because we belong to him, we are protected. The church is the apple of his eye. The New Testament calls the church the body of Christ. That's why when Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus and, conf and confronts him for persecuting the church, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Jesus sticks up for his people. You poke them, you poke him. He's not unaffected by our suffering, but he takes it personally and he will do something about it. The New Testament also calls the church the bride of Christ. And a bride is one flesh with her husband. So think about what it says there in Ephesians chapter 5 about husbands and wives. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. You're the apple of his eye. We're the apple of his eye, which means that if someone attacks us, it's like sticking a finger in Christ's eye and he has an instinctive, reflexive reaction. He protects us. Listen, if you want that kind of safety and protection, if you want the confident knowledge that there's someone looking out for you, we have the same call as the oracle here in Zechariah. Up. Up. Come to him. Flee the world. Find your haven in Jesus and among his people. There is no other solid ground. He will come to your aid. He will pour out his righteous anger on your abusers. He has done that most significantly already through the cross. And he'll give you eternal security. Jesus will populate and protect his church. Remember what he said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, when I, I began this morning, I, I, I asked you if you were concerned about the state of the church. There are reasons to feel that way. You know, sometimes we can, we can look around and, and the church looks pretty weak, right? It looks pretty weak. We wonder if, if COVID has knocked us out. Will we ever be, you know, gathered together fully again in full strength? Well, how has it, how has it affected people to be apart from fellowship and, and, and biblical teaching and just accountability and, and spiritual health for a year? What, what's the state of God's people? We look at the news and we see different scandals rocking the church and we wonder, has that made the church irrelevant? We look at the growing secularization and just sort of general disdain for the things of God and it can cause us to wonder if our kids' generation will see the end of Christianity. But I want you to listen to the words of Richard Bachman here. He says, followers of Jesus are now more numerous and make up a greater portion of the world's population than ever before. It's estimated that they are increasing by some 70,000 people every day. <laughs> this growth of Christianity is taking place, he says, despite its decline in the West, especially in Western Europe, and those who think the figure of Jesus Christ is of fading significance need to reckon with the astonishingly rapid increase of the numbers of Christian believers in other parts of the world, such as Africa and China. And by the way, I'll add this. Uh, I heard more recently, as we just had uh, Kevin share about Ramadan, 
that the fastest growing church in the world right now is, in, of all places, Iran. Listen, in this world, there are always challenges, but they cannot stop the church. It will be populated. It cannot be stopped. It will be protected. Jesus is always present with us, and he will be until the very end. So there's a response that's called for here. Verse 13, if you're still in Zechariah chapter 2, if you're not, just listen. Here's the, here's the response. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. God is on the move. You know, I, I hope you find these passages to be incredibly encouraging. Yeah, I know that uh, sometimes we, we long for like really clear like application in, in, in teaching. Uh, just give me like 10 things I need to do this week, right? Open up the word and give me some. But, but the Bible doesn't usually do that. And sometimes we're, we long for a lot of individual application. The Bible doesn't always do that. In fact, it usually doesn't. Here's what it does do. And here's what I want you to, to, to just grasp from stuff like this. The Bible is very often God telling his people collectively, I am with you. Every promise I've made, I will fulfill. I am with you. You are protected. This church is populated. In other words, you can look at yourself and say, he brought me in. And he's present with us. And it doesn't matter what you're going through in life. It doesn't matter what you're going through in life. If you believe that God is present with us because he's sent his son, he's conquered our oppressors, our sin has been put to death. Death is conquered. He's coming. He's establishing his city. And in the meantime, you belong to him. You are protected. You are sealed. That, that's the knowledge that will sustain you through every day you live. And that's what, that's what I, I pray that coming back to a passage like Zechariah where there's all these visions and, and they're, they're, just, they're, they're just so weird sometimes, right? But they're beautiful pictures. Remember I said at the beginning, sometimes it takes our imagination to see things as they really are. This is the way things really are. We have a God who is with us. Amen. So Lord, I just pray that you'd... you'd You'd give us this deep, abiding knowledge this week and that it would stir up our faith. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that you love us. Thank you that you would say to us that we're the apple of your eye. Thank you for the encouragement of, 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 a, of a city without walls, Lord, of a church that's made up of, of local churches all over the place populated with your people, protected by your love. I'm convinced 
neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you that we can cling to that and hope every day. And make us a people who joyfully flee into your arms. God, you're so good. And we do long for the day when Jesus will come back and he'll make all things new. He'll set everything right. But in the meantime, we know that that's the already not yet reality that, that we live in. And you, you've sealed us. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. We pray that in his name. Amen.